So, that was the famous Davis sisters singing We'll Understand It Better By and By. I'm Sam Biagetti. This is Historian'splaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. You can find this series of podcasts on SoundCloud and on iTunes. Uh, and please also uh, look at my Patreon page, also under Historian'splaining if you might be able to give support for this lecture series. So this is the third lecture in my series about the Middle Ages, and this one will be about the period called the High Middle Ages, which ran from about the year 1000, more or less, until 1300. So you'll remember previously in my lecture about the Dark Ages, I ended up by talking about several important social changes that led to greater stability uh, and pacification uh, in, uh, in Western Europe around the year 1000, more or less. So the first and probably most dramatic of these was the pacification of the Vikings as the Norse people converted to Christianity and became part of the Christian world of trade and politics and commerce. Also, the Peace and Truce of God movement that began in the late 900s set up rules uh, and restrictions on when uh, nobles could fight and whom they could attack, which helped to bring uh, this period of internecine war and pillaging uh, almost to an end. And I mentioned the growth of towns and villages, which became easier with the peace and truce of God, uh, as it became uh, easier for villages to safely meet and manage their own affairs, and for towns uh, to grow and form what were called communes uh, of residents to defend their, their towns and cities jointly. So all of these shifts uh, create an environment and set the stage for a period of much greater stability, uh, prosperity, and cultural flourishing that historians call uh, the High Middle Ages as distinct from the Dark Age or Early Middle Ages. Now, there were other important factors beyond what I just uh, recapped uh, that made this uh, age of greater urbanism and trade and uh, prosperity and uh, artistic magnificence possible. And those, uh, some of these root factors are actually uh, climatic. Uh, they're not human. Uh, there was a warming trend in the climate of Europe that seems to have started probably around the year 900 or a little earlier. And it led to what is commonly called the late medieval warm period from around 900 or so up to at least 1300, maybe a bit later. So the high middle ages were a time when the climate in Europe was almost as warm as it is now. Uh, by comparison in the dark ages and in the 15 and 1600s, it was colder. So, uh, so there has been uh, an up and down movement in, in climate and in temperatures uh, before industrialization. And it came 
mainly from insolation, which is the, the amount and types of radiation that the Earth gets from the sun. So, uh, so in this medieval warm period, there was more intense radiation from the sun and more of it was of the sort that tends to heat up the atmosphere. Uh, there was, for one thing, sunspot activity. These uh, areas on the sun that look dark to the human eye but actually are very intense uh, heat-producing radiation. Uh, so there was this warming trend which changed the way people in Europe could exploit the land. Uh, all sorts of land that had previously been marginal and too hard to cultivate became accessible. So either because glaciers retreated or the, the winter simply became less intense, or because uh, with less snow and ice, there were less intense spring floods and less mud. Uh, it made all kinds of land all around Europe uh, more accessible and easier to cultivate. But there wasn't a very big population in Europe at the time, in the 10th, 11th centuries. And so, people found ways to make their labor go farther. There was a great uh, uh, advance in farming technology. People started producing and using far more iron tools, particularly heavy plows that could plow uh, sort of deep, uh, harder uh, clay-type soils than had been possible in the Roman era. Uh, they invented horse collars, uh, so previously, if you wanted to use animal power to plow a field or carry a heavy load, you had to use oxen. But with the invention of horse collars, people could also use horses uh, to plow. So uh, it was much more effective full use of animal power. Uh, and there were also, as I mentioned before, there was a great development in more sophisticated designs of windmills and watermills. So people started to harness wind and water power much more to process the large amounts of grain that they could now produce uh, and not have to rely on, on human power uh, to do it. So the tremendously increased uh, food production uh, makes it possible for towns and cities uh, to grow. Oh, and one last factor in this in increased food production also is the development of the three-field rotation system, where it became common for peasants to uh, cultivate two fields at a time while leaving a corresponding third field fallow each year and rotating the crops around so that you didn't uh, completely exhaust the soil. And this was a better calibrated system of maintaining soil and fertility than had been known in the ancient world. Uh, and, uh, and, and it it made the land much more productive per person than it had been before. So all of this uh, creation of food surplus allows for uh, towns and cities. And many cities had been quite large uh, and dense in the Roman era, but had more or less been abandoned and were largely ruined in the Dark Age. But now, uh, with this greater uh, stability and consolidation and the greater food production, a lot of towns and cities that had been almost totally abandoned began to grow again. Uh, a lot of the infrastructure that had been 
uh, allowed to fall apart in the aftermath of the dissolution of the Roman Empire got uh, repaired or replaced. So there were uh, new roads and bridges built. Uh, the roads that existed all over Europe were widened. So now it became possible for two large carts to actually pass each other when they met up uh, in opposite directions on a road. Uh, and so much faster and easier trade and travel became possible all over much of, of Europe. Uh, and some of these uh, new bridges, aqueducts, and other infrastructural uh, feats that were completed in the 1000s or the 1100s are still around. And just one famous example is the Pont Saint-Benizet in Avignon in France, which uh, is famous because of the song about the Pont d'Avignon. So that uh, bridge that was uh, built to span uh, the Rhone River, a very uh, frequently flooding, dangerous uh, river, uh, really made Avignon once again into uh, a great city, uh, such as hadn't been seen in that region in hundreds of years. And most of the bridge still stands. So it was, it was built, it was completed in 1185, and most of it still stands. One section of it did eventually uh, collapse, but most of those arches are still there. So the High Middle Ages became a significant period of, of building and of infrastructural uh, achievements, uh, a lot like uh, the, the Pax Romana, the flourishing of, of the Roman Empire. So as uh, towns and cities grew, they became very complicated social organisms that had to be somehow managed uh, and that wanted to assert their independence from the powerful regional nobility. So if you were legally a commune, and many communes were formed in northern Italy and in southern France, uh, if you were a commune, that meant that every uh, citizen of the town was responsible for helping to defend it, and hence it did not have to rely on regional nobles like dukes or counts uh, for their defense. And they asserted their right to govern themselves. Exactly how they did so was very variable. But social life and political and economic life in these towns and cities all came under the influence of newly formed social institutions, particularly guilds. So guilds became a crucial, central uh, organizing nexus in these new uh, urban societies in the High Middle Ages. You remember in the last lecture, I said that these Germanic peoples who came down into the Roman world uh, had very strong traditions of groups of men, okay? They would form little sort of tribal clubs, uh, sometimes uh, little militaristic uh, armies or raiding parties, and uh, they would swear mutual protection. They would often have some sort of initiatory ritual, and they would have some kind of patron deity. Uh, and these uh, these guilds, they were called guilds, originally spelled G-I-L-D-S. They were called guilds because they would have a communal fund or uh, account of gold that they would collect, 
and that they could use not only for expenses like travel or feasting, but also that they would be able to then pay out as compensation payments when their members committed some sort of offense or, or crime against someone outside the group. They could use some of this uh, vergeld or, or communally held gold to pay out uh, payments. Uh, these guilds continued, it seems, in some form into the Dark Age and the High Middle Ages. Uh, and they gradually became more settled, permanent uh, institutions in rural society. And it seems that there were guilds that first were Christianized, so they would uh, replace their pagan god or spirit with a patron saint, and they embraced Christianity, and they often would simply become kind of religious and social confraternities of people in a certain area. There might be a guild attached to a certain parish or a certain manor, and the people in that immediate area would belong to the guild. And then uh, as towns and cities grew, uh, guilds arose there in the urban environment as well, and they could start to take on certain social and economic uh, special powers and roles. So first, uh, beginning it seems in the 10th century, some uh, guilds were formed in towns that would organize the merchants in a town. So as trade grows, you get a, a larger uh, class of people who manage uh, the movement and sale and resale of goods, whether it's food or tools or, or furniture or artwork. Um, and these uh, merchants uh, had a dangerous job because traveling on the roads was still pretty dangerous. Uh, you know, all kinds of accidents could happen. You could be robbed. You could be kidnapped. Uh, so trading and even managing trade was risky. So guilds it's, of merchants would form at, to, to collect funds and create a kind of insurance fund. Uh, and to uh, somehow manage the, the risks and dangers of, and misfortunes of engaging in long-distance trade. So first you got these merchant guilds, and then very shortly thereafter, especially in bigger cities like uh, Paris or, uh, or Venice, you, would get, uh, you started to get craft guilds. So these are guilds not uh, exactly of long-distance merchants, but of, of craftsmen engaged in a particular skilled trade. So uh, craft guilds form of, say, blacksmiths, uh, tailors, uh, glassmakers, furniture makers, stonemasons in some cases. Uh, and these guilds would organize themselves. They would have not only an initiation process, but also a training process, an apprenticeship, where you, if someone wanted to be a member of the guild, they would have to go through a learning process, show that they were skilled and proficient in the trade, and then they would be allowed to become a member of the guild. And only if you were a member of the guild were you then allowed to practice that craft in that particular town or city or parish. And guilds started to get, especially in the 12th century, they started to get royal charters, which actually empowered them to enforce their rules 
and gave them legal powers to actually prohibit anyone from uh, elbowing in and trying to practice a trade in their jurisdiction without going through the process of becoming a guild member. Uh, these guilds from there, they then actually become active players in the government of many towns and cities. So when we look at uh, towns that grew tremendously in the High Middle Ages, like for example Florence and London, uh, the government was actually built on the guilds. Uh, in London they were called livery companies, and they still exist, and the highest officers uh, in the town, such as the mayor and the sheriff, who actually enforced the laws, were elected by the guilds. So uh, individuals didn't cast votes for these officers, but rather uh, representatives of the guilds did. And these towns came to be seen as basically uh, political alliances of guilds and of trades rather than of individual uh, men and women. So the guilds are very important for understanding kind of the fabric of medieval society and how it was managed, how wealth, uh, trade, and law and power were managed uh, in the High Middle Ages. And again, they demonstrate this process that has its roots all the way back in the late Roman Empire of building a society by combining experimentally combining Germanic, uh, Roman, and Christian elements. So the guilds themselves and their deepest roots seem to come out of these fraternities of, of men in the Germanic uh, tradition. They also are Christian, they become Christianized, and the craft guilds also are based in some way on the older Roman collegia, the associations of professionals that you saw in the ancient Roman world. So they, uh, they are uh, an embodiment of this medieval synthesis of Roman, Germanic, and Christian. Okay, so this, that gives you just a little overview of what became possible in the High Middle Ages uh, that hadn't been possible in the Dark Ages, not only because of the pacification of the Vikings, but also because of the climatic warming and the great uh, increase in food production and food surpluses that now was available that could support these towns and cities and could support this growing trade and growing craft activity by thousands of people who did, were not engaged in agriculture, but who could rely on this great uh, and steady supply of food from the countryside. Okay, so once, uh, once this population growth, food production, urbanization was underway, we can then see a new kind of coalescing of medieval European society. And I'm going to talk about the, a little about the political consolidation uh, that happened in this new environment of, uh, of abundance and trade and prosperity. And then uh, I will talk about the, the way that this new medieval society mobilized itself and used these new skills and new resources that it had developed uh, and mobilized militarily and intellectually and artistically. So 
the High Middle Ages after 1000 uh, are a time of political consolidation. So you'll remember that Charlemagne's empire broke apart fairly quickly uh, after Charlemagne's death, and his son Louis the Pious was really the last one to rule an extensive empire uh, embracing France and Germany and the Low Countries. Uh, and that state fell apart in the 8 and 900s. You have uh, a period of fragmentation, of severe uh, violence, even chaos, in the uh, 8 and 900s. By about 980, uh, so around the same time that the Peace and Truce of God movement starts, you also see uh, the pendulum starting to swing back the other way, where monarchs are able to start to consolidate power again and focus uh, authority in their own hands at the expense of the aristocracy. And this much greater uh, uh, trade and travel and communication really made that possible. Uh, so if you're talking about a monarch ruling uh, a kingdom like France or England around 900, that monarch usually would have precious little control over what actually happened in the provinces and uh, outlying parts of their empire. They couldn't even know what the local nobles and potentates were doing, just uh, sometimes just a few hundred miles away. It was so hard to move people and information across those distances when you had so much local warring and skirmishing, when you had fear of Viking raids. Uh, monarchs were mainly just nominal players. They were, they were largely just figureheads. And real power was at the local level if it wasn't just broken down completely. Uh, the pendulum starts to swing back the other way in the late 900s. And this is for a lot of reasons, all the reasons I've talked about, the, the diminishing of the Viking threat, the increase in agricultural output, the increase in trade. Uh, certain monarchs see the opportunity in front of them to actually uh, consolidate power again. No one manages to restore an empire anything like what we saw with Charlemagne. But Europe, instead of this extremely broken down, fragmented patchwork of, of fiefdoms and local domains, starts to become instead a sort of chessboard of powerful kingdoms. Uh, the first one to start turning the tide, it seems, was Otto I of the Ottonian dynasty uh, in Germany, which was called Ottonian because so many of the kings were named Otto. Uh, and Otto I in the late 900s manages to uh, bring to heel various German tribes around his kingdom in Germany and actually make uh, his will known and respected throughout most of his domain. So he becomes something more than simply uh, uh, a figurehead. And Late in his reign, he also then becomes a Holy Roman Emperor. And the, the politics of the Holy Roman Empire are extremely complicated. I'm not going to get into those just now. But suffice it to say for now that uh, the Holy Roman Empire was a large sort of patchwork domain with various local uh, duchies and kingdoms within it, the most important being the Kingdom of Germany. 
and Otto becomes both uh, German king and Holy Roman emperor, and he makes uh, the Holy Roman Empire into an actual significant regional force with control over things like trade, taxation, church policy. So we're seeing uh, the emergence of, of something like uh, real kingdoms, real states, uh, starting with Germany. Not long after, uh, the Capet dynasty comes to power in France. So remember, Germany more or less uh, grows out of the eastern branch of Charlemagne's empire. France grows out of the western branch. And the Capets likewise uh, extend royal power, wealth, authority in France. And uh, the sort of rise of this Capetian kingdom culminates with King Louis IX in uh, the 1200s. He actually rules from 1226 to 1270. So he has one of these very long, you know, 40-year-plus reigns like Charlemagne's. Uh, he builds up tremendous wealth and prestige around the monarchy. He also goes on crusade. He's a crusader king. Uh, and we see uh, France rising to become uh, a serious regional power alongside uh, Germany. Now, I haven't mentioned England much. Uh, England also is very complicated and tends to be uh, a peripheral uh, domain in Europe and really uh, fragmented, generally isolated, and connected more actually to Scandinavia than to mainland uh, Europe. But that changes too in the High Middle Ages, and it changes because of the emergence of a new and really unexpected player on the European scene. And this new player, this new force in European politics that helps to create the new political order of the High Middle Ages, ironically, grows out of the Viking legacy. So the Vikings uh, generally just wanted to raid and seize whatever they could. However, there were some Viking groups that actually sought to take over and settle and develop land uh, that they believed would be more productive than the lands in Scandinavia they came from. And a large group of Vikings actually raided and settled in northern France and were able to basically extort the French monarchy to hand them over a big chunk uh, of northern France and allow them to rule it as dukes. Uh, these Vikings came to be known as Normans, and uh, Normans simply means Norsemen, you know, men from the north. Uh, and the duchy that they were able to seize in France was called Normandy. Uh, and from this base in Normandy, the Normans then expand and become a kind of imperial power uh, within Europe. Uh, they manage to marry into various important royal uh, families or form political alliances with them, and so they become serious power players. And I won't get into the details of this saga, <laughs> but in 1066, the King of England, Edward the Confessor, uh, dies without children, and it's very uh, unclear who his designated successor was supposed to be. There's a dispute over it. Uh, and the Duke of Normandy, William, 
claims the right to be the successor of uh, of Edward the Confessor. Uh, and when that right is not recognized, he uh, invades England in 1066, and he is able to defeat uh, the English army at the Battle of Hastings. Now, I won't, again, I won't get deep into the weeds of this story. It's very complicated, but uh, William is very lucky in that uh, he invades England in 1066, just a matter of weeks after England had fought off another invasion from Norway. Uh, so the King Harold Godwinson, who had claimed the throne in England on the death of Edward the Confessor, Harold uh, successfully beats off this invasion from Norway, but then immediately has to rush south and try to deal with another invasion coming from the Normans. And not surprisingly, it's a bit too much uh, to, to ask for. And the Normans defeat him and occupy England and uh, move in many of their military commanders and local nobles and chieftains and place them uh, in England as kind of the new aristocracy. They displace the old uh, noble aristocrats of Anglo-Saxon extraction and create a Norman elite uh, in England. And uh, this certainly is not the first uh, important event in English history. There's a lot before that that I will talk about later. But what's uh, significant about the Norman invasion from the point of view of the High Middle Ages is that it connects England much more to the rest of the continent of Europe than uh, had ever been seen before, at least since the Roman era. Uh, so England actually uh, consolidates, uh, creates a more effective royal government, uh, and becomes a, a player in European politics, much more than it had ever been before. Uh, and William, uh, who is now known, of course, as William the Conqueror, this first Norman king, uh, he introduces the French language uh, into England, and he also uh, carries out various uh, administrative and centralizing reforms uh, like one uh, would have seen at the same time in France or Germany. Uh, and he actually carries out the first comprehensive census of England to catalog the various resources, human, animal, economic, uh, and compiles them into what was called the Doomsday Book. Uh, a huge uh, census uh, of the kingdom that is still a really important source for, uh, for historians to understand England and to understand uh, the Middle Ages. So the Doomsday Book is compiled in 1086, uh, and it's really an emblem of this new style of uh, centralized, streamlined uh, royal administration using highly trained uh, scholars, scribes, uh, to to catalog and manage uh, a kingdom. Now, interestingly, at the same time that these uh, royal governments are really becoming a serious presence in Europe, the church is going through a kind of similar process. And the church uh, is a whole other world unto itself. I'll talk more about that later in, in later lectures. But we need to recognize first uh, a basic fact that we don't often think of when it comes to the medieval uh, medieval religion, which is that the church, too, was highly decentralized, especially 
in the early Middle Ages, uh, the it was pretty much impossible for a bishop in, let's say, you know, Portugal, to know what was happening in somebody else's uh, diocese a thousand miles away in Germany or Poland. These places were far separated. They were totally different economically, demographically. Their, their customs uh, and habits were different. And when problems or dilemmas arose, church churchmen, whether they were abbots or bishops or just parish priests, had to make decisions on the fly. And you had an extremely variable Christian church. Uh, and uh, not only in its, uh, its teachings, but also in its practices. People venerated different saints. They observed different holidays. Uh, the churches might look different, sound different in different parts of Europe. Uh, and what the, the various leaders of the church around Europe did at least recognize that ideally the ultimate leader should be the Bishop of Rome or the Pope because the, uh, the Bishop of Rome was the successor of St. Peter. The first Bishop of Rome was St. Peter and St. Peter had been in some way picked out or appointed by Jesus Christ as his uh, most important apostle. Uh, so for these reasons, people did generally say, well, the, the ultimate leader of the Western Church should be the Bishop of Rome. Uh, still, the Bishop of Rome, like a monarch in Paris or in London, didn't really have that much control over what was going on in the church outside of his own little uh, immediate uh, uh, jurisdiction in the city of Rome. So, uh, so the church finds itself in a really dangerous situation in the 11th and 12th centuries when these new monarchical states are arising and they effectively now have much more political and economic power than the church does in any one of these domains. And uh, there's a fear, among, especially among several popes, that they're going to completely lose control of the church and that uh, they're going to be overwhelmed by the power of these rising monarchs. So the church... Uh, sort of wises up and realizes that it too needs to centralize, it needs to uh, strengthen communication and coordination among these various elements, and it needs to instill uh, respect for the authority of the leader, which is uh, the Pope. And beginning in the mid-11th century, the church uh, engages in this long fight, uh, first with the Holy Roman Emperor, and then with other monarchs around Europe, a fight called the investiture controversy. And investiture, in this case, it's referring to the ceremony where you invest a priest or a churchman in, uh, in a church office. And uh, so the controversy was over who has the right to perform this ceremony, and hence, by extension, who has the right to choose the personnel of the church. And uh, the Holy Roman Emperor had the habit of appointing priests and bishops within his empire. But the Pope uh, asserts his right to choose all church personnel. And this becomes a major uh, political battle uh, between the Pope and the Holy Roman Emperor. I won't get into the details. It ends up with uh, the Pope and the Emperor 
basically chasing each other through the snow in the Alps uh, and, you know, the emperor showing up barefoot at the pope's door and it's a it's a very uh, melodramatic story but behind it is this very important uh, question of who has the real power over the day-to-day workings of of the church on the ground is it the monarch or is it the pope in rome and this is the dispute that will lead to many famous uh, dramatic episodes all through the high middle ages including the murder of Thomas Becket, the Archbishop of Canterbury, which I'll also talk about later. It's one of the sort of iconic events of this era. It's the basis for uh, Canterbury being a a holy city and a pilgrimage site. It's been the subject of novels and plays. Uh, But so much of the, the drama of the High Middle Ages actually comes from these continuing disputes between the authority of the crown and the authority of the church. Okay, so this this is the basic sort of uh, political economic contours of of medieval society as it enters this this new age of of the high middle ages. Now that you have all of these new tools and resources at your disposal this greater economic production, uh, this huge cadre of skilled artisans and their guilds, uh, these new greater towns and cities, these new monarchical uh, governments, uh, European society mobilizes. It looks for places to direct these new powers uh, and resources, uh, new uh, goals, or really in many cases old goals, that Western Europeans had long hoped to attain, but that now were uh, somehow within reach in a way that they hadn't been all through the previous, uh, previous centuries. So European society in this high medieval civilization mobilizes on the military level and on the intellectual and artistic level. So if I, I'm going to talk a little about the military mobilization first. So high medieval society becomes expansionist. That's how at least we would call it today. Uh, although they didn't necessarily always think of it uh, quite that way. It becomes uh, an expansionist militaristic society. So so much of the militarism of the Dark Age had been powerful nobles turning against one another. Okay, This had been uh, in a, a, a civilization of constant internecine conflict. As that internecine conflict diminishes, uh, the, the warrior class, the class of, of knights, of warriors on horseback, professional fighters, uh, seeks out new targets. And uh, as the, this, this noble class has become more thoroughly Christianized and brought under the influence of the church and church teachings, they seek out targets for their military skills and, and ambitions that also can at least be seen as advancing Christianity and advancing the interests of the church. Uh, The first of these that we ought to mention 
is the Reconquest or Reconquista. So that is the gradual recapturing of Iberia, the region that's now Spain and Portugal, the recapturing of that area from the Moors, right? Which is the sort of catch-all term for Muslim uh, and Middle Eastern and North African peoples that had conquered and were ruling uh, Spain and Portugal. So if you remember, Charles Martel defeated a Moorish uh, force at Tours. And, uh, and in the 700s, the Franks under, uh, under Charles Martel, Pepin, and Charlemagne were able to push uh, the Moorish forces out of France and also out of a sort of buffer zone or s small strip of northern Spain the sort of mountainous northern area of Spain. Those were uh, reconquered from the Moors very early on in the Carolingian dynasty. From that point onward, from the 9th century onwards through the High Middle Ages, small Christian kingdoms organized themselves uh, in that sort of northern zone of Iberia, uh, that kind of... Uh, uh, you know, mountainous fringe area of northern Iberia. And those small kingdoms attracted uh, the services of knights and other noble fighters. And they very slowly, in a very gradual, piecemeal way, were able to raid southward and capture strategic points and little by little chip away at that Moorish domain and slowly uh, reconquer uh, Iberia. The people who did this uh, were, you know, of more or less <laughs> fervent commitment to Christianity. They weren't all religious fanatics. Uh, religion was one important motive, but it also was simply opportunistic. It was a way to maybe get uh, a bit of wealth, maybe get a bit of land, and get some fame and some glory as a fighter if you helped in this ongoing project of reconquering uh, Iberia. And it was, uh, but it was a very chaotic environment as well. It was a frontier borderland sort of area. And there were many opportunistic uh, swords for hire who actually fought uh, on, on both sides or on many different sides in this, in this conflict. It was not uh, simply a sort of head-to-head -head confrontation of Christians against Muslims. Uh, this ideal of furthering the power and glory of the church and furthering the cause of Christ uh, really saw a much more dramatic uh, and unabashed realization in the First Crusade. Okay, and I, I've mentioned the Crusades before and I'll talk about them again later, uh, but the First Crusade was called by the Pope in the year 1095. Uh, and there are many reasons why he called for uh, this first crusade. One was the desire to control Jerusalem. That was probably uh, a serious motivation for the Pope, and even more so, it was the most important uh, and most powerful motivator for the people who actually went on crusade, was that dream of, of 
capturing Jerusalem and controlling the routes to the holy city, which the medieval Christians considered to be the center of the world. And when you look at medieval maps of the world, what you see is Jerusalem at the center, and then you see the three continents of Europe, Asia, and Africa uh, spreading out from that center, sort of like the petals of a flower. Uh, everything centers on Jerusalem. Pilgrimage to Jerusalem was very frequent. Uh, it was it was considered an honorable uh, as well as you know exciting and enlightening. Uh, achievement to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Many people did it, including commoners. Uh, there were sometimes dangers and risks of making the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Uh, in 1095, those dangers and risks were not particularly great, but nonetheless, uh, there, was, there were a lot of stories and a lot of memory of bad things that had happened to pilgrims to Jerusalem when they were attacked by by raiders uh, or or warring armies, uh, and that provided some of the impetus for this dream of recapturing Jerusalem. There was also widespread belief in in a possible coming apocalypse and the the second coming of Christ, uh, and many people believed that they were helping to pave the way for this second coming if they if Jerusalem were in Christian hands then it would be possible for Christ uh, to make his return. And there was uh, the more immediate problem, which was the rise of the Turks. So the, the, uh, the Muslim powers that had controlled the Middle East for hundreds of years were a sort of patchwork of mostly Arab uh, kingdoms and emirates uh, that grew out of the early Islamic empire. But in the 11th century, a lot of these kingdoms uh, succumbed to this huge onslaught of, of the Turks coming out of Central Asia. So this tremendous uh, migratory, expansionary, new empire uh, that had only recently converted to Islam, that tended to be quite fanatical in their commitment to Islam, and that had taken over most of the Middle East, and also were rapidly invading and capturing Byzantine territory. Uh, they defeated the Byzantine army at Manzikert in 1071. They were now threatening to possibly capture Constantinople and completely overthrow the Byzantine Empire. And not surprisingly, the emperor, the Eastern Emperor, began writing repeated letters to the Pope uh, in the late 1000s asking for help, asking for the Pope to organize uh, for forces of Western Christian knights who were now known to be great skilled fighters to send expeditionary teams of, of Western knights to help defend Byzantium from this Turkish uh, threat. And that too was another uh, prompting for the Pope calling the First Crusade in 1095. Uh, and lastly, there was the underlying political fact that uh, there was still occasional internecine warfare in Western Europe, and there now was a lot of contention and occasional warfare among these monarchs uh, in Europe, and the Pope wanted to 
pacify these conflicts and to create a more consolidated, more harmonious Western Christian civilization with the Pope as supreme leader. And a very obvious way to do that was to create a new mission to gather the forces and resources of these various local potentates and these various uh, powerful kings and mobilize them together uh, to fight an outside enemy someplace else and to do it under the direction and sponsorship of the church. Uh, so this was a, you know, a very beneficial political move for the Pope to call for this crusade. Now, I won't get into the extreme details, but the first crusade was an unexpected smashing success. They somehow managed to actually gather somewhere around 200,000 people and equip them and prepare them at least enough to get them there on, on the road to Jerusalem. Uh, and they successfully captured a large strip of territory running from the Byzantine Empire in Asia Minor down through Syria and Palestine and all the way to Jerusalem. Uh, so this is a, an incredible, almost miraculous success uh, by the First Crusade. And the main reason that they succeeded, despite all the huge mistakes and, you know, just ridiculous errors and bad ideas that came along with this crusade, uh, they were a success mainly because uh, the Pope's speech calling for a crusade in 1095 was met with an enormous outpouring of popular enthusiasm. Uh, thousands of people immediately took up the cross, as they said it, put cro fixed cross figures to their clothes and pledged themselves to go on this armed pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And word about the Pope's uh, proposal fanned out through the countryside, through France, Germany, the Low Countries. It spread all over Christian Europe and inspired great excitement and an enormous uh, groundswell of people, goods, resources that were thrown at this project of retaking Jerusalem. And it's a testament to the, the power of the symbolism of Jerusalem in the minds of medieval Christians, that so many people committed themselves to this really harebrained scheme, which managed to work. Now, after that initial great success uh, of capturing Jerusalem, uh, the the Crusaders had to set up some sort of system for ruling these domains uh, that they captured in the east, or as, as they called it, Outremer, overseas. Uh, and managing and defending those territories was very complicated. And the first, the initial success of the First Crusade, in part, came about because they had the element of surprise. The Turkish and Egyptian uh, powers in the Middle East that faced off against the Crusaders didn't expect, they had no idea what they were facing. They didn't expect this gigantic mobilization of thousands of people suddenly uh, hacking their way uh, to Jerusalem, and, and the Crusaders had the advantage of surprise. After 1100, they no longer have that advantage, and they face much more serious opposition from, uh, from their Muslim opponents. And what we see is further crusades 
as popes and kings and emperors uh, try to hold control over Jerusalem and also try to retake Jerusalem after they lose it, uh, you see a series of mass mobilizations to the Holy Land that mostly fail. Uh, there are some partial successes. I'll talk about the Third Crusade. Uh, there are some victories here and there, but what we see overall is a gradual loss of those domains in Outremer, a permanent loss of Jerusalem, and uh, and a sort of uh, creation of a tradition of failure. <laughs> Uh, where Europeans repeatedly go out on crusade and fail to uh, to achieve their extremely ambitious uh, objectives. Uh, so the Crus but nonetheless, the crusades are important in in two ways, which I'll I'll talk about more later. One is that they open up this tremendous avenue of encounter and exchange between Europe and the Middle East, much more than had been seen before. Uh, and a lot of uh, ideas uh, and practices that Europeans hadn't previously known firsthand come back to Europe as a result of the Crusades. And, uh, and the Crusades become a kind of uh, fixture in the European mind as uh, an ideal. Crusading as an activity becomes an ideal and it, and it resolves a conflict or a tension that had existed before in the medieval world where uh, on the one hand, fighting and courage in battle were celebrated, especially as ideals for the nobility, who were the warrior class, but at the same time, violence and killing were discouraged and disparaged by, by the church. Uh, and the peace and truce of God movement had tried to resolve this tension, at least in, a, in a, such a way as to manage it and mitigate the damage, uh, still, there was this psychological tension between the warrior impulses and the pacifist impulses within European society. And crusading as an ideal allowed a kind of escape valve where people could take up the cross and they could uh, use their skills and use their prowess as warriors while at the same time being celebrated as pious Christians serving the cause of Christ. So crusading becomes in this way a sort of mental and political and economic fixture of high medieval uh, life. Also, Northern European nobles organize and undertake military expeditions into Northeastern Europe, into the Baltic region, uh, which also come to be called crusades. Uh, so uh, groups like the Teutonic Knights, this alliance, this sort of fraternal alliance of, uh, of Christian noblemen in Germany, go out and become a kind of imperial power unto themselves by attacking, conquering, and fortifying uh, Lithuania and, uh, and the whole Baltic region, which at that time was still mostly pagan. So they're, they're carrying out this kind of uh, typically Germanic mission, right? Forming a brotherhood of men, 
uh, and going out and raiding and conquering, but they are doing so in the name of Christ. And this uh, Lithuanian uh, campaign also comes to be designated as a crusade, and so does eventually the reconquest in Spain. So the Crusades by 1300, by the end of this high medieval era, you have Crusades going on not only to the Holy Land, but also to the northeastern fringe of Europe in the Baltics and the southwestern edge of Europe in Spain. And all of these campaigns are all, uh, are all Crusades in some way, and all of them are expressions of this kind of synthesis of the knightly martial ideal with the pious Christian ideals taught by the church. Okay, so so these are the various directions in which in which Europe mobilizes itself on the military level. There is also a great intellectual and artistic mobilization. And much of the great art that we think of and that we associate with the Middle Ages and that kind of define our our aesthetic understanding of the Middle Ages come from the this high medieval period. So there had been some great uh, building and architecture in the early Middle Ages, uh, particularly during Charlemagne, Charlemagne's reign. Uh, there is, you know, his great Romanesque uh, chapel at Aachen, and there are other Romanesque uh, churches and monasteries around Northern Europe. Uh, and the Romanesque style basically followed, uh, like like the name says, it, it followed Roman models. It used uh, simple uh, curving barrel vaults, arcades, uh, small domes, uh, and it sort of tries to recreate the, the, the elegance, the openness, the simple symmetries of classical architecture. In the High Middle Ages, a new style arises, uh, starting around 1100. Uh, builders start to experiment in new forms that are not like the Greco-Roman legacy. And in particular, they, uh, they take inspiration from Islamic architecture, which by this point many uh, Europeans are seeing in Spain and in the Holy Land. And they start uh, trying out new techniques for reaching greater heights and for creating uh, more open and airy buildings. Uh, and in particular, they start to use peaked arches rather than the uh, sort of smoothly curving uh, half-circle arches that you would see in a Roman building, they start to use uh, various sorts of peaked arches and ribbing, which can create much taller open uh, windows and doorways and gateways. Uh, and instead of simple uh, barrel vaults, you start to see very complicated ribbed uh, archways and, and vaults that open up uh, greater space for windows and this is the beginning of we, what we call gothic architecture right so the great gothic cathedrals begin in the high middle ages we call it gothic uh, but at the time the style was simply called the french style because it began uh, in france you see early uh, gothic monuments at beauvais and Rheims, 
and eventually uh, Notre Dame de Paris. And these uh, Gothic buildings, of course, are highly, highly complex. They involve all kinds of uh, very intricate decorative carving. Uh, this is also the age of, of very uh, sophisticated and expressive uh, stained glass uh, art. And these are, are kind of among, you know, the great lasting uh, architectural monuments in Europe. Uh, and they, they are a very specific uh, style. And you can even date a lot of these buildings remarkably precisely because of the fast-moving, fast-changing, fast-developing styles that they are, are getting through their, their, their experimentation and through uh, copying and experimenting with Islamic models. Uh, the High Middle Ages also see the first flourishing of vernacular literature. So by this time, you have distinctive new languages that have arisen in all of these major countries I've been talking about. Uh, you have French, you have Italian in Italy, you have English uh, in England, which also is, is constantly changing with these new Norman French influences coming in from, from Normandy. Uh, and new, uh, whole new styles and genres of literature arise as people uh, experiment with these vernacular languages. Uh, the biggest one, uh, and the, the first one probably, is troubadour poetry. Uh, so this is a style of poetry, usually lyric poetry, that is composed in the Occitan language, which is a southern French uh, language. People today might call it a, a dialect of French. It actually was very distinctive and was, properly speaking, its own, its own language. Uh, troubadours uh, create a whole new uh, sort of artistic language and uh, set of images that often are about courtly love, about sort of fanatical, devoted love to a particular woman. Uh, it tends to be romantic, it involves, you know, deep, uh, passionate emotion, uh, and it has its own sort of forms and, and formats of, of composition. And the earliest troubadour poet we know of was William, Duke uh, of Aquitaine. So he was, he was a nobleman, he was a duke, and uh, he composed troubadour poems around the year 1100, maybe earlier than that, but definitely by about 1100. Uh, and this poetry uh, flourishes among uh, composers who often travel around from one uh, noble court to another, especially around southern France, uh, through the 12th and into the 13th centuries. Uh, other great poets uh, emerge later, uh, later in the 12th century or in the 13th century, who are uh, more distinctive and innovative than the troubadours, like uh, Marie de France, uh, who wrote much of her poetry in the late 12th century, 
She was definitely proficient in Latin, French, and Anglo-Norman, which was a sort of uh, variation of Norman French influenced by English. And she wrote most of her poetry in in Anglo-Norman. And it's possible that she was actually situated at the royal court of the kings of England who were also dukes of Normandy. Right, remember that William the Conqueror uh, was Duke of Normandy, he conquers England, so his successors are at one and the same time kings of England and dukes of Normandy. And uh, Marie de France was probably attached to that Anglo-Norman royal court, although we don't know hardly anything about her. Uh, we also see, as I mentioned last time, or as I mentioned in the first lecture, uh, the creation of universities, right? So much of the preservation and study of classical knowledge is done uh, in monasteries and also in priories, which are sort of uh, small monasteries of, uh, of, of learned monks that are attached to cathedrals in towns or cities. And beginning around 1000, uh, people who are interested in learning about law, about literature, about mathematics from these monks begin to gather at these priories in the large towns and cities. Uh, and some of them actually form guilds of students who uh, organize themselves and regulate themselves as they study with these monks and priors. Uh, the first we know of is at uh, Bologna in, in Italy. Uh, uh, students organize themselves and create a sort of schedule and set of, uh, of, of routines for how they will study with these monk teachers. Many years later, in 1158, this Guild of Students gets a charter and it becomes known officially as the University of Bologna. Many others follow. Okay, we have, uh, we have similar creations of universities in, uh, in Oxford and Cambridge and Heidelberg in Salamanca in Spain. And uh, however, the, the most important is at Paris, which begins as simply a cathedral school of students studying with the monks attached to Notre Dame de Paris. Uh, what's a little different about Paris as compared to Bologna is that it actually begins from a guild of the teachers, right, as, as compared to the guild of students. So Paris uh, gives much greater powers and much more uh, prestige and intellectual control to the teachers, right? Uh, at Bologna, the teachers can actually tell the teachers what they want to learn and, and can even fire them. Uh, whereas at Paris, it's the faculty that really has much more power. And so not surprisingly, Paris attracts most of the great sort of leading minds and scholars in Europe and becomes the most prestigious uh, university in, in medieval Europe. The universities uh, become the hotbeds of a new style of philosophy, a philosophy, a style of philosophy that is uh, extremely rigorous in its use uh, of logic. The study of logic is fundamental. Uh, it often is uh, extremely uh, precise and even obsessed with fine point questions of 
of, of, of reasoning and metaphysics and epistemology, okay? It can be often very arcane, and it's concerned with very difficult metaphysical issues, things like uh, the existence of God, the existence of free will, uh, the existence of abstract concepts, uh, the, the question of universals, which is more or less, uh, are abstract concepts real or are they simply words? Uh, these sorts of difficult metaphysical questions are intensely debated by scholars at these new universities alongside more useful fields like law and language and, uh, and mathematics. This uh, brand of philosophy comes to be called scholastic philosophy because it is the philosophy of the schools, right? The cathedral schools and universities. Arguably, the real beginning of, uh, of scholastic philosophy is Saint Anselm, who is uh, a monk who by birth is a Lombard. So he's from northern Italy, and by extraction, he's a Lombard. So he comes from that, you remember that Germanic tribe that invaded Italy and had to be defeated eventually by Charlemagne. Uh, that is Anselm's ancestry, but he becomes uh, a monk and an abbot in France and then uh, eventually is appointed to be Archbishop of Canterbury in England. And he puts forward a, a sort of logical, what he considers a logical proof of the existence of God, which at the time and over the century since then, some people have found more persuasive uh, than others. But regardless, he sort of jumpstarts the debates and conversations over these difficult, fine philosophical points, which then uh, come to be kind of the, the centerpiece of intellectual life at the universities. So scholastic philosophy in some form already began uh, early in the 12th century, but it becomes a much more intense and uh, heated sort of battleground in the 1200s uh, because of the scholars' exposure to a whole new body of thought that they really hadn't had access to in the early Middle Ages. So in the early Middle Ages, the sort of dominant uh, leading lights of philosophical thought were Plato, and they had access to some surviving books by Plato. Uh, Augustine, who I'll talk about more later, who was uh, a, an early Christian theologian and philosopher deeply influenced by Plato, uh, and, uh, and Boethius. And Plato, Augustine, and Boethius, who was a, a Roman philosopher, uh, all of them in different ways uh, celebrate the life of the mind or the spiritual life and consider that to be the more meaningful and more real life as compared to earthly, physical, social, political life, which they see as sort of more base and transient. So that's the dominant way of thinking in the in the early Middle Ages. And I'm, I'm, I'm painting an, with an extremely broad brush here. It's much more complicated than this. And there are very important ideas that I'll get into later. But basically, in the early Middle Ages, you have uh, an intellectual life that really draws a, a dramatic distinction between the higher life, which is mental or spiritual, and the lower life, which is political, social, worldly. 
in one way or another. And, and the, the sort of mental and spiritual world is more important and more real than the human world. Uh, this is the mode of thinking that continues to be broadly accepted and broadly influential in the schools when scholastic philosophy begins. However, as the reconquest of Spain progresses, Christian states are able to get a hold of libraries of literature that had been accumulated and preserved by the Islamic rulers in those states. And the Islamic world really had a much better collection and a much better knowledge of the classics than the Western Christian world did by this time. They had gotten all sorts of books and manuscripts from uh, the Middle East, from the Byzantine Empire, and they had a much larger cadre of scholars studying these Greek and Roman thinkers, uh, the most important of whom was, of course, Aristotle. Uh, Aristotle was the most prolific and the most important and influential philosopher there's ever been, and in the early Middle Ages, Europeans knew practically nothing about him and had almost none of his texts. They had all been lost at one point or another in fires or floods or abandonment of towns. So Aristotle was hardly known at all until these uh, Christian states in Spain, as they reconquer uh, the country, are able to get hold of these Arabic libraries and rediscover Aristotle. And in particular, uh, Cordoba falls in 1236, and this is the, the biggest uh, Muslim stronghold. This is the great capital of the Emirate. And now the Christians suddenly have tremendous access to these classics they had never seen before. And there's a kind of explosion of interest in Aristotle. Uh, these, they, these new works uh, flood into the schools in Europe. Uh, people fall about translating them into Latin as, as quickly as they can. And a sort of school uh, of thought devoted to Aristotle arises in these universities, particularly the University of Paris. And Aristotle, in contrast to Plato and in contrast to these early medieval thinkers, uh, Aristotle puts much greater weight on observation and cataloging of the visible world. He is much more aggressive in using the senses to accumulate uh, hands-on knowledge, and he's much more interested in social and political life. And his ethics and politics are very sophisticated. He's very interested in human nature and in how to build uh, a strong, flourishing society from the building blocks of ordinary human life and human nature. And he takes uh, social and political life much more seriously. So Aristotle uh, presents this whole other philosophical point of view that is very appealing to a lot of people in this high medieval society where you're seeing uh, growing states, growing cities, growing trade, uh, and knowledge of the world, knowledge of materials, knowledge of human relations, institutions, now seems much more promising and useful than it might have in the Dark Age. So what you get then is a kind of ongoing conflict between the old uh, 
the older school of thought that was thoroughly committed to Augustine and Plato and this new school of thought that is enthusiastic for Aristotle. Uh, and there are real differences uh, and conflicts between these two schools of thought. I won't get into them in detail, but uh, basically this is the situation into which uh, a new young scholar originally from Sicily uh, steps into when he, as a, as a sort of new uh, rising star of the academic world at the University of Paris, uh, takes up his position and he studies Aristotle intensely at the same time that he is still committed to the sort of Augustinian orthodoxy and he makes it his task to fuse the two to create a synthesis and he is able to bring them together and create uh, a very sophisticated theory that he believes uh, sort of recognizes the limitations and the fallenness of human nature that you see in Augustine but also makes room for the optimism and the belief in uh, human capability and perfectibility that you see in, in Aristotle. So Aquinas uh, is a synthesizer and he becomes uh, uh, kind of the, the rock star of scholastic philosophy in the mid and late 1200s. Uh, he dies tragically in an accident and slightly after he dies, a few years after he dies, his teachings actually are condemned by the church. Uh, and they're condemned for a long period of time, but eventually that ban is lifted, and since then he's been sort of uh, recovered and revived and is celebrated again, not only as a major doctor of the church, but also he uh, today is taken very seriously as a, a very sophisticated, uh, subtle, uh, philosopher and analyst of, of, hum, of humankind uh, by modern thinkers, even those who do not accept uh, Catholicism, still often take Aquinas very seriously as a, as a philosopher. So this is, uh, that's a little bit about the intellectual scene uh, and intellectual flourishing up through the 1200s. Things get a lot more complicated in the 1300s, in the late Middle Ages. Uh, and later scholasticism. But uh, rather than get into that, I'll just lastly point out uh, how this new artistic flourishing and the military mobilization came together. Right, So these things were not entirely separate. Uh, the new uh, artistry, which was very interested in uh, in linguistic experimentation, in poetry, in verse and song, uh, came together with, uh, with the militarism in the formation of a new ideal of life, right? So the martial and warrior ideals of the noble class and the knightly class uh, was Christianized and it was uh, developed, it was given a new kind of moral idealism in the philosophy of chivalry, right? And uh, chivalry, uh, that word that we know in English, it simply comes from the French chevalerie, and cheval is, is horse, chevalier is a, a horseman, right? Uh, a warrior on horseback. And chevalerie is simply the way of the horseman. And uh, chivalry is a sort of vague catch-all term for 
the high ideals that people at this time attached to the way of life of of the knight, of the warrior on horseback. And as probably all of you know, uh, the, the chivalrous knight is supposed to be uh, self-sacrificing, courageous. He's supposed to protect the weak and the innocent like uh, women, children, uh, the old, uh, peasants, uh, clergy. And he's supposed to be an adventurer. Uh, he isn't just a guardian of a strategic point. He's supposed to go out and explore uh, and find enemies to fight and find people in need of help. Uh, and this is sort of the high, uh, the high ideal of chivalry that flourishes in the high Middle Ages. And it is encapsulated and celebrated in the chanson de geste, the, the songs of great deeds uh, that become uh, the sort of uh, masterpieces of high medieval literature. So the, uh, the the first chanson de geste that we know of is the Chanson de Roland, or Song of Roland, which is a long epic poem about a possibly real or possibly legendary knight who fought in the service of Charlemagne against the Moors in the 700s. Uh, and the first version of the Chanson de Roland was probably written around 1040. So they start to emerge right in this high medieval period, and they sort of give life and complexity to the new image of the knight who lives by the peace of God and the truce of God, which still are pretty new at this time, right? The peace of God and truce of God were just invented in the late 900s, and they're spreading in the 1000s. Uh, yet the Song of Roland presents this picture of a knight living by these high ideals and protecting the innocent and sacrificing himself uh, back 300 years earlier. Uh, so the chansons de geste tend to create an idealized, romanticized past. Okay, When we think about knights today, we think of it as a romantic past because we're picturing the Middle Ages. But even when these songs were written, uh, they were already creating stories and characters from several hundred years earlier. And so they already were creating this sort of idealized past. Uh, it's more likely that uh, El Cid was a real person. We have documents about him. He was a knight for hire who fought on many different sides in the reconquest in Spain. But Chanson de Geste were written about him probably first around 1140. Uh, and again, they romanticize him as this ideal knight in service of the cause of Christ. Uh, when, you know, if we actually look at who he was uh, in, in actual history, it was not necessarily uh, such a romantic picture. Uh, he was simply, he was a mercenary for hire, but he was a mercenary for hire of amazing accomplishments, we have to say. Now these chansons de geste uh, see their greatest, most abundant realization in the Arthurian romances, right? So Arthur was supposedly a legendary king of England who may have been based on a real person. And if he was based on a real person, he probably would have lived in the 6th or 7th centuries, sort of in, in England in the aftermath of the withdrawal of the Romans and in this, this sort of period of, of breakdown in the aftermath of, of the fall of Roman Britain. 
however, we only have a few sort of snippet references to him in early medieval literature. The first more comprehensive account of the Arthur we know, the ruler of Camelot, the Knights of the Round Table, the quest for the Holy Grail, this sort of stereotypical Arthur that we think of was first written about by Geoffrey of Monmouth in the 1130s. So again, at the same time that these stories of Roland and El Cid are being composed, Geoffrey of Monmouth tells us this great sort of romantic story about Arthur and Camelot. Uh, and later writers, such as Chrétien de Troyes, uh, took up that sort of explanation of Arthur from Geoffrey of Monmouth and elaborate on it and write the great epic poems that become a staple of medieval uh, literature. Okay, now uh, these chansons de geste like uh, Roland, El Cid, and the Arthurian romances, they are, as I said, they're highly idealizing. They present us this sort of uh, uh, extremely uh, elevated uh, image of the knight or uh, of, of, sh of the life of chivalry. Uh, and, in, and in Camelot, they actually give us a whole utopian society based on these uh, chivalric ideals. But, uh, but they were actually taking their own idealized self-image of their own age and projecting it uh, into the past, right? If there was a Camelot, it was uh, probably somewhere around five to six hundred years before Geoffrey of Monmouth wrote about it. So the, the you know, if there, and if there was a Camelot, it was not this, uh, you know, chivalric world of noble heroes. It was probably, you know, a band of Gallo-Romans using force of arms to try to hold together some sort of regional state against the Anglo-Saxons. Uh, it wasn't, you know, these these sort of uh, beautiful, you know, knights in plate armor riding off and, and rescuing ladies and looking for the Holy Grail. But this is the image that high medieval people chose to project back into an idealized past. And a last word about these these uh, chansons de geste is that they, uh, they're extremely romantic and reading them can be pretty tedious for modern people. And they can seem like kind of uh, just sort of, uh, you know, delusional, uh, sort of gauzy pictures of this perfect past. But in all fairness, they actually often had great psychological complexity as well. Uh, they were very interested in following the deeds of a particular person or set of individuals and seeing how the strengths and weaknesses of their characters play out. Uh, and part of what I think is so powerful about the Arthur legends is that they present us this very uh, sort of golden uh, era in this imaginary place and time, but they also... Uh, human frailty and imperfection is a major force. And in the high medieval versions of the Arthurian romances, uh, what undoes Camelot is the fact that Guinevere and Lancelot uh, commit adultery. Uh, and in response, King Arthur is not able to deal with this betrayal without basically destroying his own kingdom. So it's really the, the envy, the selfishness, uh, the animosity of these human beings at the top of this idealized world that undoes it 
you know, it's the it's the flaws, the understandable flaws of people like Arthur and Guinevere and Lancelot that that are the undoing of of Camelot. So so these these stories can be very psychologically complex and are really interested in seeing how virtue and vice play themselves out in in human drama. So uh, so the picture that I've presented so far of the High Middle Ages probably largely looks pretty appealing. Uh, and certainly we do have an age of great consolidation, of new prosperity and productivity, of comparative internal peace, uh, of, of artistic uh, innovation and achievement. But as often happens, this greater internal stability in this society went hand in hand with greater conformity and intolerance. Uh, so as I mentioned in the first lecture, this is the period of time when we see more harsh uh, draconian laws trying to control sexuality and suppress what they consider to be sodomy, especially bestiality, which was the, the major sin that the church uh, was most concerned about. Uh, and that's not surprising when you consider this was still a mostly rural society and uh, bestiality was probably a common uh, sexual activity. Uh, you also see more draconian uh, penalties against homosexuality uh, in towns and cities where a sort of uh, homosexual subculture occasionally arises. You see uh, occasional punishment and even execution. Uh, you also see a rising anti-Semitism, more frequent attacks on Jews. Uh, the First Crusade, when, when it launches from Germany, uh, when those, those, those particular armies that had organized in Germany set off to participate in the First Crusade, they begin by attacking and massacring Jews, both because they see them as enemies of Christ and also because that's a source of money that they can uh, then requisition and use for the Crusade. Uh, the High Middle Ages is the time when the idea of the blood libel becomes widespread, so the idea that Jews uh, kill Christian children in order to somehow ritually use their bodies or, or their blood. This uh, you know, spurious rumor becomes widespread and is frequently used as a way of, uh, of attacking Jews. And you see more frequent expulsions of Jews. Uh, Jews are completely expelled from England in the late, in, in the early 1200s, I should say. And there are frequent expulsions from, from many parts of Europe. Uh, Jews become sort of uh, white elephants uh, at this time. And uh, you also see greater policing and suppression of what the church considers to be heresy. So a, a new and unusual Christian school of thought called the Cathar movement becomes very powerful in southern France at the same time that the troubadour literature is flourishing. And some people have argued that that Cathar philosophy and the troubadour poetry are, are connected. Uh, it's a school of thought that is that rejects all kinds of common Christian doctrines like the Trinity. It rejects the power and authority of the Pope. Uh, and it becomes very uh, strong and popular, especially amongst the nobility 
in southern France in the 1100s and early 1200s. And in response, the church first tries to reconvert these Cathars to orthodoxy by preaching and persuasion. But when that fails to, to stop the Cathar movement, uh, the pope actually calls another crusade. So a further crusade is fought to suppress, uh, to defeat these Cathar nobles, to suppress the, the so-called Cathar heresy. Uh, and the first large organized inquisition is set up to root out uh, the Cathar heresy. And many people are, are executed uh, usually by, by burning. Uh, in order to try to end the, the Cathar movement. So the, the, the Cathar heresy gives us one example of the greater uh, concern among the church and among royal governments to maintain orthodoxy, to suppress heresy, and to use force and violence uh, to do so. So uh, in these ways, I'll talk about all of these things more later, but uh, in all of these ways, the, the high medieval society is not a, it's not a utopia, not at all, but it's a different sort of society. It's a society uh, where uh, crowned heads, the church and the papacy all have new uh, power and prestige, where uh, urbanism and trade uh, and massive building projects uh, exist alongside a largely rural uh, population and lifestyle. And it's one that where very strong and deeply inculcated norms, uh, Christian, uh, chivalric, uh, royal, really help to create uh, a, a strongly consolidated civilization in Europe. Uh, and you get the stability, you get the prosperity that comes with this strong uh, and widely embraced set of ideals and norms, but you also get the conformity and the suppression and the targeting uh, of those who deviate uh, from the norm. Okay, uh, this is a trade-off that you see in all kinds of civilizations all through history, and people in Europe at this time uh, had to face this, this trade-off uh, once again. By 1300, uh, Western Europe was starting to become something of, of a victim of their own successes. So I, I've said how uh, crusading became a regular part of Western European life and politics, uh, and as such it became a big drain <laughs> of people and resources who kept, you know, people kept riding off uh, to go on crusade and promptly dying. Uh, the growth of towns and cities is a double-edged sword. It has all kinds of advantages and opens up all sorts of new possibilities, but it also started to lead to overcrowding, uh, disease, uh, the spread of disease and poor sanitary conditions. And you also see an increasing difficulty in feeding this large uh, town and city population and maintaining a steady food supply uh, to prevent food shortages or, or, or famines in these growing towns and cities. And that becomes more and more difficult, especially after 1300, when we start to see a return of climate cooling. So this late medieval warm period starts to taper off after 1300, and you're seeing longer winters, shorter growing seasons, and uh, famines, not only in the countryside, but in the cities that depend on that huge agricultural surplus, uh, that starts to become more and more of a frequent problem after 1300. Uh, but without uh, getting any further into that, 
I'll just say that these are some of the problems uh, looming around this otherwise flourishing society that lead to, uh, to crises and even disasters after 1300 and lead to the end of what we call the High Middle Ages and the beginning of the Late Middle Ages. So that is all for today. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this lecture. There will be many more. Uh, so please uh, subscribe on SoundCloud or on iTunes. All of these should be available on iTunes. And if you like the lectures and want to see them uh, keep coming, please uh, go to Patreon to my page under the same title, Historian Splaining, and become a supporter. Thank you so much. Hey!